So uh, next week, uh, Chet is gonna be bringing us back to the book of Hebrews. Uh, But this morning, I'm going to be continuing the series called The Gospel Made Visible that we've talked about, uh, that we've gone through the last couple of weeks. Um, In this series, we've been looking at the different attributes that make a church healthy. Uh, We kind of loosely based this series off of the book, um, What is a Healthy Church? Or the book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, put out by Nine Marks, um, the, the church ministry. But in the first sermon of the series, I showed that a healthy church is a group of people chosen by God to put the gospel of Jesus Christ on display. Well, if a church is seeking to put the gospel on display, what traits should it have or practices should it maintain? So that's the question that the rest of the sermons in this series have been answering so far. Um, And today, I'll be addressing the topic of expositional preaching, which is a good follow-up to David's sermon from last week. Last week, he did a great job of explaining the importance of sound doctrine. Well, this sermon will focus on where that sound doctrine comes from. It comes from here. It comes from the Bible. So my intention is to dive deeper with you into why we need the church to be devoted to the word of God. So let me lay out for you where uh, we're gonna be going this morning. I kind of wanna give you a framework in advance for what we're gonna be doing. I wanna answer two questions with this sermon. First, I wanna answer the question of what is expositional preaching? This sermon is about that specifically, like I said, so we need to know what that is. And in answering that question, I want us to get a picture in our minds about what an expositional or word-centered, you can use those words synonymously, what an expositional word-centered church looks like. I want you to be thinking about that. I want you to be getting that picture in your mind as we're talking this morning. How should we handle and learn from the Bible? How should we prioritize it? What values and goals and practices should we have with it? I want to talk about those application questions, and we're actually gonna do that first. So we're kind of gonna be going backwards in this sermon from how at least I typically approach sermons. We're gonna start with where I hope we all want to finish. Our first point will be the goal that I want us to all strive after. Then I want to answer the question, why is expositional preaching important for us? Why do we actually want to be that church that I'm gonna describe in the first point? That church that we're gonna have a picture in our minds of, why do we even want to be that? So that's the second point that we're gonna be looking at. We're gonna be looking at the reason why we want to be that kind of church. And my short answer to that question, I wanna give you guys up front, is the main idea of my sermon and what we'll really see from our passage this morning. We preach expositionally. We want to be a word-centered church because the word alone brings the dead to life. Let me say that again. This is what I want you to, if, if you take nothing else out of this sermon, I want you to get this idea. We preach expositionally. We want to be a word-centered church because the word alone brings the dead to life. We will see that powerfully and clearly in our passage this morning. We're gonna be looking at Ezekiel 37, verses one through 14. Um, That's gonna be our main text this morning. We're gonna be looking at a number of other verses also uh, throughout our time together, but this is gonna be, Ezekiel 37 is gonna be kind of the bedrock on which all the other passages are built up on. 
So if you could turn there now, if, if you have the, one of the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 724 in there. It starts there. But I want you to follow along with me as I read that. And we're not going to look at the passage too much in the first point. We're really going to focus on it more in the second point. But I still want us to read it now to have this on our minds, even as we're looking at what expositional preaching is. So again, Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. So follow along with me as I, as I read that. It says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he laid, led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over the, these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and yet you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So again, I'm, I'm hoping to answer two questions this morning regarding expositional preaching. First, what is an expositional church? So that that's kind of thinking about it even more generally. Why are we being expositionally, why are we preaching expositionally and why do we want to be an expositional church? Why do we want to prize that? Why, would, why do we want to do that? And, um, or that, that's my second point of why do we want to do that? What does it mean to be an expositional church and why do we want to be one? So let's first start with that first question. And we've got to start answering that question by answering even a more foundational one. What is exposition? What is expositional preaching? 
Now, uh, Mark Dever, he's a pastor and he's the founder of Nine Marks, which again is a church ministry that the, its purpose is to help churches uh, be healthy, to know how to um, be structured, how to think, how to approach their ministry in a God-honoring biblical way. Um, and so he, Mark Dever, has given the simplest definition that I've heard for what expositional preaching is. He says this, Expositional preaching is when the main point of the text is the main point of the sermon. That's simple. The main point of the text is the main point of the sermon. In other words, Scripture sets the agenda for what is said and how it is said in the sermon. That's in contrast to topical preaching, which, ironically enough, is what this sermon today is. Um, I'm preaching on expositional preaching and commending it to us while doing a topical sermon, which it's okay to do that from time to time. Uh, and sometimes that's important and needed to do. We just don't want that to be the regular normal pattern of the church. But getting back to my point, this sermon today is topical versus expositional because when I was deciding what to preach this Sunday, I started with a topic I wanted to address and then, then decided on a scripture passage that addressed that topic well. To a degree, I had a plan in my mind before I even went to the Bible. This is not a purely expositional sermon, like I said. And again, that, that, that can be good and helpful for the church, actually, from time to time. We just don't want that to be the normal pattern. Expositional preaching, on the other hand, lets the Bible establish the plan. If, if it were a dance, think about it this way. If it were a dance, the Bible, not the preacher, would be leading the way. An expositional sermon is prepared when the preacher makes his way progressively th through a passage or a book of the Bible and lets the text dictate what he says and how he's going to say it. The preacher isn't jumping around or skipping verses. He isn't making secondary topics the first priority if they're not the first priority of the text. His tone matches the tone of the biblical author in the passage. He's taking the text just as it is written and he's making his way through it, exhorting the church accordingly. That's an expositional sermon. And that is what we strive after in Redeemer. But why is it called an expositional sermon or expositional preaching? That's because when you exposit something or you're being expository, there's lots of different terms that you can use to describe it. That's when you explain or describe something. So the idea is that we aren't imposing our own ideas or intentions upon the text of Scripture. To use more technical language, we're performing exegesis rather than eisegesis. We're letting the text speak for itself rather than us trying to speak for it or impose our own presuppositions upon it. All we're doing is trying to explain it and make it clearer for our present context and audience. Um, Charles Simeon, a great expositor of scripture from the late 18th century, uh, he explained it really well. Uh, what exposition is. This was what he said his goal whenever he was preaching was. He said, my endeavor is to bring out of scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head 
never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the spirit in the passage I am expounding. The foundational mindset behind expositional preaching is that we want our audience to hear from God himself. That is the pursuit that is the desire behind and that undergirds this idea of expositional preaching. We want, as preachers, for you to hear the thoughts and mind of God. We want you to hear from him, not just us. We are weak, we are fallen, we are very limited individuals with blind spots, and we have hobby horses and so many different things that we can make our sermons about. Expositional preaching is when we want to say, We want you to hear from God himself. And so this is what his word says to you. That is our responsibility to you, the listeners, as we are preaching to you. A healthy church will practice this. And to communicate God's thoughts and opinions, it's important that we approach the text rightly. So this is where we have to remember a couple of key things. So I want to point out, kind of give you a quick breakdown of how preachers should approach the text of scripture so that they can preach God's word expositionally, but also how we can all study God's word, even even privately ourselves. So first, the author determines the meaning. We've got to remember that. I was recently watching a video of an interview with a musician that I like, and the musician was asked what one of his songs meant. Like they were, the interviewer was talking with him about the lyrics and asked him, like, what is the meaning of this song? And frustratingly, the musician's response was, oh, that, that's for the listener to decide. Um, friends, that's not what God is saying in his word. He does not want us to go to the Bible and take away whatever meaning we want from it. That modern approach to literature and art that you see so common today, where the audience actually determines the meaning, not the author, not the maker of it, um, that's a foreign concept to Scripture. In every passage of Scripture, God has an intended meaning. He has a point he's trying to communicate to us. Now, that might have multiple layers. We'll even see that more in our text in Ezekiel 37 later on. We'll see how there's multiple layers of meaning to it. But there very much still is an intended meaning given to us by the author of the text. So we need to know that. It's determined by him, not us. So to understand that meeting, we need to first consider what the author's original audience was and what context he was speaking into so that we can understand why he was trying to say what he was saying. So when we look at scripture, that's what we want to consider first. Who is the author? Who is he speaking to? And why is he speaking to them in what context? We want to consider that. So for instance, um, our passage today was not written to us. If you read more of Ezekiel's book, you would see that we are not, we, Redeemer Church, are not his primary audience. Does he have implications for us to learn from? Absolutely. There would be no point in reading and studying it if there weren't. But are we his original audience? No. 
Ezekiel was writing to the Jewish and Israelite exiles in Babylon. He was writing to people who were utterly hopeless because their nation has just been destroyed. They've been shipped away to a foreign land and it seems to them that their God has abandoned them in judgment because they have turned away from him one too many times. We see that in the explanation in verses 11 through 14. They're saying, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. He's talking to the house of Israel. He's talking to the exiles. So Ezekiel's audience is them, the exiles in Babylon, who think their God has forsaken them. So first and foremost, this passage is for them, to give them hope that God hasn't utterly forsaken them, despite the judgment that he has brought upon them in their exile. But then second, we want to discern the theological implications of the, of the passage. And so first, when we consider the original audience in context, we want to consider the theological implications of what the author is saying to them. So again, notice, even just in the last statement that I was saying, that the passage is to give hope to the Israelites that God has not utterly forsaken them despite the judgment that he's brought upon them. Even in that statement, we're learning something about God. There's theological implications right there. God is holy and cannot tolerate sin and rebellion. He judges those who turn from him. Yet, at the same time, he is a God who gives hope. He is a God who upholds his promises even when his people turn away from him. He finds a way to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. Those are all theological implications that were true for the Jews then and are true for us now because God was the same then as he is now. And then finally, we apply those theological implications to our current context and audience. So that's what we'll see more of in the final point. That's where we bring it home to us. So with all of that said, if someone wants to exposit scripture, and this again goes for both the preachers and the congregation, the key is to first discern, discern the author's intention for the passage. In other words, why did he write it? Then let's discern the theological implications of it. Another way to think about that is, what is he teaching us about God and ourselves? And finally, we apply those implications to us today. What does it mean for us? That's the simplest way that I can explain exposition. Um, and that's how we should all want to approach the Bible every day. And that's what we want to hear from our preaching. But there is more to being an expositional church, though, that's, that's, than just studying the Bible in a certain way. And that's why we all need to hear this, not just preachers. I think many of you could be tempted at this point to tune out much of the sermon because it's about an approach to preaching. You might be thinking, well, I'm never gonna be preaching from, from the pulpit on Sunday morning, so a lot of this isn't really relevant for me. I don't need to hear these things. That's not true, though, as I've already been saying. There's a certain mindset behind being expositional to being a word-centered church that we must all share if we're going to be a healthy church and individually healthy members of the body of Christ. Consider this. In a podcast that I listened to recently, Mark Dever, um, he asked Jonathan Lehman a question. Now, Jonathan Lehman, he's a pastor and he's a staff member of Nine Marks, the ministry I was already talking about. 
And he's very well studied on what the nature of the church, that's what he wrote his dissertation on actually um, in seminary. Endeavor asked Lehman this, what is necessary for a church? Straightforward, but very significant question. What is necessary for a church? And Lehman's answer kind of caught me off guard a little bit. He said this, the Bible, the gospel preached from the Bible and people who believe and submit to the Bible and then covenant together as enacted through the ordinances. So he said, those are the traits that are necessary for a church. Now, I don't bring that up for us to pick apart that answer. I bring it up because I want you to know how necessary he thinks the Bible is to the life of the church. Again, when stating what is necessary for the church, Lehman says this. He says, what is necessary for the church? The Bible, the gospel preached from the Bible, and people who believe and submit to the Bible, and then covenant together as enacted through the ordinances, which are found in the Bible. In all three things that Lehman lists off, the Bible is mentioned. We need the Bible, we need the gospel that the Bible tells us about, and we need to follow the Bible together. That's basically what he's saying is necessary for a church. The centrality of scripture to the life of the church that Lehman is pointing out is what is key to being an expositional word-centered church. A healthy church is one that esteems scripture above all other authority. It is infused into the songs that are sung. As we've already seen example of this morning, I'm so grateful to be part of a church that has such scripture-saturated music that we sing together every Sunday morning. I love it. A healthy church is one that infuses scripture into the prayers that we pray together. We also see that here. In the counsel that we give each other, we do that because we know that scripture is trustworthy and good, so we let it, rather than other things, guide us. When our feelings and society tell us to think and act certain ways, we test those things against the Bible. Think about some of the kind of more hot-button topics these days, things that society is really wrestling with and thinking through today. What should we think about homosexuality and gender issues? Well, Let's see what the word says regarding how God has designed us. Does pursuing racial reconciliation really matter? Well, let's see what it means for all humans to be made in the image of God. How How should we address our anxiety and depression? Well, again, let's go back to the word and see how God addresses those who are anxious and despairing. What kind of men or women should we strive to be? Well, how about we go to, again, the Bible and see what it says about godliness and humility and how God prizes those things over pride. You see, an expositional church is a church that wants to follow God by listening to his word. It cares what he thinks, no matter if it's a political matter, a counseling matter, a theological matter, humanitarian Whatever the case may be, we want to hear what God thinks first and draw our conclusions from him. 
an expositional church wants to think the way that God does, feel the way that he does, share his values, display his character, obey his commands. An expositional church seeks to know and follow the word because it wants to know and follow the one who has spoken it to us. And in all of that, he is the one who gets glorified ultimately. An expositional church is a God-glorifying church. Think about the Bereans. We hear about them talked about in Acts. In Acts 17, verses 10 through 12, um, it says this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Uh, In his book, Taking God at His Word, Kevin DeYoung says this about the passage, um, that that Acts 17 passage that I just read. Um, What I'm gonna read from his book, it's it's a little, excuse me, a little lengthy, but it's worth reading. I think he points out, he gives an incredible picture, I think, of what kind of church we want to be. He says this, the Jews in Berea, by contrast, were more noble than their counterparts in Thessalonica. They were eager to hear the word and persist in studying the scriptures. Daily, they examined the scriptures to see if Paul's words could be supported by God's word. They were looking into things, testing what they heard, diligent to discern what was truth. When I speak at different conferences and churches, I'm often surprised by how few people bother to look at their Bibles when I'm speaking. Be it laziness, forgetfulness, or something else, it's not a good habit. I have no authority in myself. I don't want people to just take my word for it. God's people should be testing everything against God's word. Whether we are the ones teaching or listening, we need to have our Bibles open like the Bereans. Every day the Bereans search the scriptures to see if Paul's gospel had divine authority. And they confirmed what they heard was true to scripture. And therefore, they believed. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they were utterly submissive to the scriptures. They would accept something new if it could be supported in the scriptures. They would believe something controversial if it was based in scripture. They were willing to follow Christ for the rest of their lives, provided they were in the process following the scriptures. This passage perfectly demonstrates what it means to affirm the authority of the Bible. When it says the Bereans were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, the implication is that if the scripture said it, they would believe it. And if they couldn't find Paul's teaching confirmed in and consistent with scripture, they would reject all Paul's teaching. The written word of God was their authority. It had the last word. It was the final word, after which no other word would be necessary and contrary to which no other word would be believed. So again, I think that passage from De Young really highlights like my desire for us as a church, what I hope we would be. The church in Berea was an expositional church, and it wasn't just expositional from the pulpit. 
the congregation was as active in studying the scriptures and learning from them as Paul was while he was preaching to them. Do you approach and receive sermons actively like that yourself? Are you engaging with the biblical truths others are sharing with you and seeking to see Jesus in them? Do you draw out application points for yourself on Sunday mornings or do you only take away what is clearly and explicitly stated? I encourage you, wrestle with the text yourself even as you are hearing it preached to you. Friends, let's not be a passive church. Let's actively engage in the Bible together. Here's one challenge for you. On Sunday mornings, so today can be maybe the first time that you try this, try to take away at least just one truth that's revealed in the Bible that the preacher, so this morning me, doesn't mention. When, when we look more deeply at Ezekiel 37 in a little bit, note something that I don't talk about. Meditate on that. Reflect on it. Learn from it. Even share it with me afterwards if you want. I'd love to hear what you took away from the passage, even if it has absolutely nothing to do with, with what I'm saying. Like, I want you to hear from God, not just me. I, in, in fact, there's, there's been a number of times after I've preached on a Sunday, someone will share something that impacted them um, from the sermon. And it's funny because what they're sharing is actually not really something that I was even talking about or something that was just like a really minor thing that I mentioned, but it was not what I was emphasizing. And you know what? That's, that's encouraging to me when I hear that because that's a reminder to me that God works despite us, despite our limitations, despite my ability to only be able to communicate a little bit in the short amount of time I have to preach to you guys. Like, I had to shorten my sermon manuscript a lot because there just wasn't enough time to communicate everything that I wanted to say. But here's the thing. God will teach you things that I didn't even think about when I was preparing this sermon. Let's treasure that. The Bible is a mine that we will never fully excavate. There is always more beauty to behold, truth to learn, conviction to feel, and encouragement to be gained from it. Our sermons on Sunday mornings are only meant to help you get started in that search. It's not the sum total of what you will get from it. I hope not. I don't desire that for, for you. If you think about it, being an expositional church is actually fairly simple. We tend to overcomplicate what it means to be a healthy or good church at times. There's a profound beauty and stability that, that rests in a church whose first priority is simply to preach and know the Bible. We so often think churches need to be flashier and trendier than they are, um, or than that. We think that preaching needs to be done in the most charismatic, dynamic, or eloquent way. Um, but that's not true. A church that has scripture just plainly and simply preached week in and week out from the pulpit and a congregation who is just spending time in the word themselves, studying it, learning from it, and sharing it with one another, a church that does that is far more blessed than it could ever realize. And how do I know that? As I said in the beginning, I wanted to start with our goal. That's the kind of church I want us to be. 
And my hope is that we are striving after that. But again, how do I know that? Why should we be that church? Why does it matter? What is the importance of expositional preaching and being a word-centered church? The answer to those questions is my second point. That's our motivation and our reason for being a word-centered expositional church. But before I get to the reasons for being expositional in our preaching and ministry, I wanna point out, just take a couple minutes to point out some of the reasons that we oftentimes aren't expositional. And it's helpful to know these things. I don't wanna spend a lot of time dwelling on them, but I think it's helpful for us to recognize them so that we can be aware and wary of them when we are gravitating towards these things. These are things we wanna be mindful of and sensitive to so that we can turn from them. So what are some barriers to being an expositional church? I just wanna list five of them for you. There's plenty more than this, but I just wanna list five. So the first one that I, I thought of was tradition. Oftentimes we're afraid of change. We're afraid of discomfort or the unknown. So we keep up traditions sometimes even when they aren't necessarily supported by the Bible. That can be a barrier to being a word-centered church. Our subjective feelings um, is a second one. We feel like something is good. We feel that something is right. And so we choose to trust our feelings even when maybe the Bible says something else would be more prudent or right. And so we trust our feelings over the word sometimes. Think about pride. Simply put, a lot of the times we're not expositional because we just don't think we need scripture. We think we can handle life on our own. We think that we can get by with just grit or personality or intellect or things like that. Or pragmatism, a fourth one. We choose to do what produces the results that we can clearly see fastest, even if it isn't grounded necessarily in our biblical convictions or priorities. That's something we have to be wary of. And then the fifth one is really a general category that includes each of those first four, but just idolatry itself. Pride, pragmatism, subjective feelings, tradition, all of those things can be idols that we prize over God. But there's other things that we can hope in rather than the Bible, whether it be money, whether it's status, whether it's comfort. We think that as long as we have those things, we're good, and therefore we don't need scripture. If, if our job is going all right, if things at home are good, if we've got enough money in the bank, if we're living a fairly moral life, then we don't need to immerse ourselves in scripture. That's not true though. So that's a lie that we're tempted to believe. So let's not believe it. All of that is to say that we can come up with ample reasons why we don't need to devote ourselves to scripture, whether it be in the pulpit or in our private lives. However, all of those things miss the point. We must guard against them. They don't see the power that's found in the word of God. And that's where our passage, that's where Ezekiel 37 comes in so powerfully. 
I want us to look back at it again because it's been a little while since we looked at it. So let follow along with me. I want to read it again. And as I read it, notice the power of God that is demonstrated through the word. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out, of, out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I, and I answered, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So you see here, this is the word of the Lord going out. Here's the effects. Thus says the Lord God to, to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I'm the Lord. So that is God's word. And see what happens? So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and the skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Do you see that power? And then here's the explanation of what just happened. In verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. O people, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will, I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. As I said in the beginning, we preach expositionally and I would also say more generally, we want to be an expositional church because the word alone can do this. The word alone brings the dead to life. Our sermons must be word-centered. They must preach what God is preaching through his Bible. And our ministries must be word-centered. Every aspect of the life of this church must have scripture programmed into its DNA because the Holy Spirit chooses to use the word and the word alone to give us life. Good strategy, creative marketing, strong charisma, great intellect, none of those things can accomplish what this spirit accomplishes through his word. I'm not saying those things are pointless or worthless. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if we want to see the miraculous work of God bringing the dead to life, we must have the word 
as our foundation. We must share it. We must know it. We must believe it. God the Spirit chooses to work in conjunction with and through the word to give life. This is what we're seeing in Ezekiel 37. I mean, that's why he starts, look at verse four. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. It is the word of the Lord that is making this happen. The Holy Spirit is working through the word to accomplish this incredibly miraculous act that Ezekiel is beholding. And notice in the passage that God the Father gives Ezekiel the specific words to say and to use. He doesn't command him to say, like, he doesn't command him like this. He doesn't say, Ezekiel, say whatever you want to these bones and they'll come to life. That's not what God says. God tells Ezekiel specifically what to say. And that's what Ezekiel says. The power of the message comes from the fact that it was spoken by God first. Its power comes from the fact that it comes from him. God's power is such that just by speaking, he brought everything into existence. All that we have, all that exists, everything in the universe was spoken into existence. God's words made it happen, made it be. That is the power of God, that just by speaking, he wills things to happen. Well, by giving those words to Ezekiel himself, they were able to go forth from Ezekiel with the power of God. And we see the effects of that in the passage. Like I said, the valley of very dead, very dry bones knit themselves back together and come to life as a vast and great army. That is the power of God working through his word. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice that that is all of scripture, not just some of it. Nothing in scripture is pointless or unnecessary. All of God's words, all that he has given to us in here has a point, has a purpose for us. It is meant for our edification and building up so that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. That means in here is every principle that we need to make every decision that we need to make in life to follow and obey God. Every principle. That doesn't mean that it tells us everything to do, but it gives us all the principles we need to make all of our decisions. And that's, that's profound to reflect on because you know what? That means that even the genealogies, even the architectural details of the tabernacle and the temple, those are meaningful for us. There's a point to them for us. We can learn and be edified and changed by those things. So do you skip over those passages? I encourage you, don't do that. God has given that to you. He has spoken that to you 
So meditate on it. It might take more time to learn from those kinds of passages than others, but study it. Study those who have studied it for longer than you. Talk to others about it. They might be able to point out truth to you that you don't even see yourself. Let's, let's do this exposition together. Let's not just do it privately. But again, it all matters and it's all powerful. It all will help you move towards God. And it's all a demonstration of God's love for you. Think about it. God is not a silent, withdrawn parent. Our Father is not aloof from us. Think about what it would mean if we didn't have this. If we didn't have his words, his loving words that he uses to reveal himself to us, to teach us, to guide us, just to simply communicate what his promises and love for us is. Think if we didn't have the Bible, but we do, and that in and of itself is a demonstration of God's love for us. So be in awe of this remarkable gift from the Father. But again, let, getting back to the Holy Spirit, we, wanna, we see in the passage how the Spirit works through the word. When it's talking about the breath coming and giving life to the bones and the sinew and the skin, that, that, is, that should point us to the Holy Spirit. That word breath in the Hebrew is the, the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. This is meant to point us to the fact that it's the Spirit that is working and enacting God's plan and intentions that are being prophesied by Ezekiel. He fulfilled, he, the Holy Spirit, fulfilled what God spoke to Ezekiel and what Ezekiel prophesied to the bones. Peter says in Second uh, Peter 1, verse 21, he says this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's true here in Ezekiel 37 too. Ezekiel is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these, are, these words are coming to him from the Holy Spirit. They are ordained by God the Father, given to him by the Holy Spirit. And as he speaks them, the work that is being done by them is being done by the Holy Spirit. He is enacting. He is doing all that we see here in this passage. He, the Spirit, imparts the word to its human authors according to the will of the Father, and he uses it to accomplish the Father's will. The Father ordained in Ezekiel was his agent on earth, but it was the Holy Spirit who's working here, who's bringing life to the dead. He gives life, he sanctifies, he comforts, he rebukes, he enlightens our eyes so that we can see these things in scripture. He is the one who transforms us and he does it through the word. And again, don't overlook the power here. The spirit uses the word to bring the dead to life. It's not like he's just like, I mean, it's not, it's not even that he's just healing someone who's blind. That in and of itself is miraculously amazing. Like, just healing the blind is incredible by just speaking words. But 
He is taking dead bodies. Like, these are people who have been dead for a long time. Their bones are dried up at this point, and it's a vast multitude of bones. It's a valley full of them. And yet he's taking them, knitting them all together and giving them life. That is incredible to think about. And this is meant to point to the fact that he brings those who are spiritually dead to life. And that spiritual regeneration that we experience, I mean, we see this in verse, uh, verse 13 and 14. He says, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves of my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So he's meaning here, he's going to bring them back to their land and he does that. Their exile is not permanent. He restores the Jews to their land he fulfills his promises to them, but this has a greater meaning too. He is going to place his spirit within us. He gives us not just physical life, but spiritual life. He regenerates those who are spiritually dead by his word. And that is no less miraculous just because it's not physical, just because we can't see it. And if you are a Christian, he has done that in your life already. You heard the word of God from whether it's a preacher, whether it's a parent, a friend, someone else. And in that instant that you believed that word that was preached to you, you were brought from death to life. You were resuscitated. And you probably didn't even realize that you were dead before then. And guess what? Every day of your life, he is sustaining your life by his word. He is transforming you by it. And the more you immerse yourself in it, the more transformation you will experience. Jeff mentioned this earlier. God's word does not go out and come back void. The more you immerse yourself in the word of God, the more transformation you will experience by it. All great men and women of the faith, if, if you hear about their lives, you will see that that is a trait that they share. They devote themselves intentionally and deeply to communion with God through scripture and prayer. Read any Christian biography and you'll probably read an entire chapter on the fact that the individual in question would wake up really early in the morning and spend hours in scripture. I was just, I listened to um, a biography on Charles Simeon who I quoted earlier. I listened to a biography about him earlier this week. And um, it talked about how he would get up at 4 a.m. every day and spend four hours every day in scripture and prayer. And I'm not saying that that's what we all have to do. But what I'm saying is it's no coincidence that someone, and he experienced intense persecution from his own church for decades, and he was sustained and persevered through those trials and ended up having an incredible ministry in the word by the end of his life because he, he went to this. This was his lifeline. This was what he immersed himself in every single day. That's no coincidence that he was able to persevere 
because he was in this, because he knew the God that was strengthening him. And he knew that God because he saw him as he saw him in his word. Do you believe that? That this will change you and give you life and joy? Or do you believe that the Bible is just like any other piece of worldly wisdom or literature? Hear Ezekiel's words and believe. Trust in the power of the spirit that works through scripture. If we aren't going to, if we're not doing that, it's because we doubt the power that the Holy Spirit wields through it. But he is powerful, more powerful than we could ever know. So let's trust and believe and go to his word and expect the miraculous, expect transformation, expect life in ourselves and in those who hear it. But even more than that, the reason the spirit has chosen to work through the word, because you might be asking, why does he choose to work through this? Why doesn't he work? Why doesn't he bring the dead to life by other means? But it's because this reveals the living word to us. This reveals Jesus Christ to us. A word-centered church is a Christ-centered church. It is only because of Jesus Christ that life is possible. Jesus himself said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what is Jesus saying there? I think Peter provides a good explanation in Acts 3. He says this in a sermon that he's preaching to the, in the Jewish synagogue. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He's talking about a man who they just healed. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And now brothers, know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, Ezekiel being one of them, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Again, friends, Jesus and Peter are both pointing us to the same truth, that a word-centered church is ultimately a Christ-centered church because all prophecies of scripture are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All promises found in the Bible find their yes in him. The dead are able to be brought to life because Jesus Christ died for them in their place on the cross, bearing the weight and guilt of their sins. He is the reason the Bible is good news. This is all meant to point to him. So when we come to the word, if we're not ultimately seeing Jesus in it, 
we're kind of missing the point. It's like watching just one inning of a baseball game without paying attention to who actually won in the end. Let's, let's look at the innings. Let's see how each one builds to that. But we need to know the final results. We need to know who won. And the answer in the Bible is Jesus. Jesus is victorious. Jesus has provided eternal life. And by his spirit, we are united with him in that life. By dying, he became the author of life. Jesus conquered death and the spirit unites us with him by grace through faith. It's not because of what we do. It's not even by how we study scripture that we are saved. It's by him dying on the cross for us. His death and our faith in his sacrifice for us is enough to give us life. And that's what this tells us. This tells us, don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your works. Trust in him. This is reminding us that, of that over and over. And that's how we are sustained. That is how we receive salvation and life. This shows us Jesus and what he has done. And that is ultimately why life is found through scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit, revealing those things to us. Because Jesus died and fulfilled the scriptures, the valley of dry bones could live, and us too. So what does this mean for expositional preaching? It means that when we are expositing the word of God, we are wielding a power that awakens and reveals the person and work of Jesus Christ to those who need life. Those who are made alive will accept this with joy. The word reveals our savior to us and draws us deeper into life, the life that we have in him. Mark Dever wrote this on the subject. He said, for the Christian, I think this is a very cool way of putting it. For the Christian, the speed of sound, in other words, the word that we hear, is in a sense greater than the speed of light, the things that we actually see. And what he means by that is that before we behold Jesus in person, we're going to know him by what we hear from his word. By knowing him through his word, we have faith and salvation. But that will lead us to the day when we will stand before him and behold him with our eyes too and rejoice and worship with him for eternity. That should compel us not only to share the word like in, in ourselves by studying it and meditating on it for ourselves, but sharing it with others as well in evangelism and discipleship. Notice the agent who God uses in Ezekiel 37. He uses a person. He uses Ezekiel. God uses us as his instruments to speak his word and bring the dead to life. The word not only brings us to life, but it enables us to play a part in seeing others come to life through its message as we preach it to the world and the world hears of Christ. We so often doubt this. So we so often think that we need more. We, we need a good apologetic. We need the perfect style and approach to change people's hearts. But again, we can't be the one to change people's hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And guess what? He tells us time and time again in his word that the way that he's gonna do that is by his word. So let's share it with those who don't know him and see their lives transformed by it. 
I mean, I've, I've seen that in my own life. When I became a Christian, I became a Christian my freshman year of college. And at that time, I, I very much considered myself a rationalist. I, I had a whole bunch of questions and issues with Christianity from a purely intellectual standpoint. And I had like a list of things in my mind that needed to be proven true for me if I was going to believe in Christianity. But guess what? I had a friend um, who I met through a campus ministry who just preached the gospel to me. He preached the gospel to me. He showed me in, his, in the Bible what the gospel is, what, like who Jesus is and what he accomplished for me on the cross. And I heard that message repeated multiple times. And guess what? I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ without any of those questions answered that I initially had, things that I thought I needed to have answers for, those issues that I needed to be addressed, God bypassed all of them by just putting his word before my eyes and telling me, this is truth. He used his word, not a good apologetic, not good answers to change my heart. Those answers came in time, but those answers were not the reason that my heart was changed. My heart was changed because the Spirit of God illuminated my eyes to the gospel through the word and changed my heart. He does that in, in, in so many people. So trust that that will happen. Redeemer, why should we be an expositional church? Why should we preach expositionally and infuse all of our ministry and evangelism in the word of God? It's because, again, the word alone brings the dead to life. Let's harness that power, a power that God freely offers us, and let's witness his incredible work through it. I want to finish quickly with just a quote from Charles Spurgeon um, about the word and the gospel. His illustration communicates what, what I'm trying to say about the power of God working through the Bible. Um, Spurgeon is known for being a man of um, incredible words, and I think this, is, this illustration is a perfect example of that. So let me finish with this. Spurgeon said this about, again, about the word and the gospel. A great many learned, learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt, it is, very pro- it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet, I always notice that when there are most books of when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself, and the best apologetic for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah 
will soon drive away all his adversaries. Let me pray in, in light of that. Heavenly Father, God, let us meditate on that. Let us believe that. Father, your word is that caged lion that Spurgeon is talking about. Your word is a power unto itself because of your spirit who works through it that we cannot even fathom. God, help us to see your love through it. Help us to see and share that power with the world. God, help us to be a church that devotes its, itself to the word. Help us, help me and those who preach from this pulpit be those who communicate your word to this congregation, not our word. And God, help this full church, this whole congregation, let us all hear and know and submit ourselves with joy to your gospel, to Jesus Christ, who is the living word, who is revealed to us through scripture and who is our hope. God, I pray this in his name, amen.